Our meditation this morning is taken again from Psalms 119, and uh, we are in um, verse 129. It says, your statutes or your testimonies are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the naive. I open my mouth and I pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from human oppression, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your degrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not being obeyed. This prayer speaks to the passion that comes from reading and learning about God's testimonies through his word, through his people, his saints. By reading it, we can know the love of God that is like weaved throughout history, the stories of mankind. There's some pretty awful stories in the Bible, isn't there? Isn't there? Yes. But it's God drawing his people by his love, always saying, remember me, remember me. I am here. I am your redeemer. I am your creator. And then we have the cross of Jesus Christ, and everything begins at the cross, doesn't it? Our hope begins at the cross, at resurrection. And this psalmist, uh, you know, just draws us into that compassion, too, that we see. He has compassion for his people, those he loves. And when he sees his laws, his precepts, his statutes, his testimonies being broken, it breaks his heart. And that's why we sing, God, hold us fast to this hope. Abide with us. Make your home in our hearts. That's what it means, abide. Home is a place of safety. It should be. Sometimes it's not, but home is a, supposed to be a place of peace, of rest, of safety. And that's what we're asking. Abide with me in life and death. Father, we're so thankful this morning that we can step into your presence and we can trust your plan even though sometimes that plan is so hard that we know you are faithful, Lord. And the light of your word gives us clarity. It gives us clarity for this life and hope in this life and hope in the afterlife. We thank you, Lord, that your love has asked us to join you, Father, in redemption. And we have that choice, Father, today. And my prayer is that everyone in this room chooses you, Lord. And we stand, Father, in thankfulness because of that promise. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that those that are outside of the fold of truth would come, Lord, would come in. We ask that as our prayer and the cry of our heart today for loved ones, for family, for friends, Lord, we ask that. And we're so thankful, Lord, 
that we can stand in assurance because we know you and we have a testimony of our own of your saving grace your righteousness to us your mercy that is new every morning come abide with us in life and death we are so grateful lord for that promise in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 13. Um, we're continuing in our, our study of Mark's Gospel. Um, we've been in chapter 13 for a couple of weeks now. We're talking about Jesus' words about his return. And I do have to say, for those who were here last week, if you left here thinking, I'm not really sure what he's talking about, you were not alone. Um, if you left confused, I, I do apologize. It was really, actually pretty simple. We were talking about Jesus, I was talking about, I'll take ownership of it, um, Jesus' expression, the abomination that causes desolation. It is, it is simply something of a, of a spiritual nature that is so corrupt and so evil that it leaves a, a, a place, a site, typically a site of worship, completely unusable, and how that had happened before, and it was going to happen again, and it will happen again, and how the point being that because the people, the Christians in Jerusalem, took Jesus at his word when it happened again in 70 AD, they left, and their lives were saved, even though hundreds of thousands, some estimates as high as a million, were killed, the Christians escaped because they took Jesus at his word. And the point being, very simple, we need to take Jesus at his word. And in that portion of scripture, he's talking about being watchful, guarding that was essential. Well, what is essential? Well, our faith is essential. Our families are essential. Our relationships are essential. And I would add to that list, our callings are essential because Jesus adds it. When he talks in the parable about the man that goes away and leaves each member of his household with a task to do according to their gifts. We all have gifts in the household of faith. And we need to be careful to not only do those things, contribute through those gifts, but also to be careful to live our lives in such a way that we don't invalidate those gifts. So we need to, do, we need to take Jesus at his word and be responsive. So with that having been said, I probably did a much better job in the last 60 seconds than I did it all last week. So we're going to try to do better this week. Mark chapter 13, and we're talking about tribulation. I said we'd talk about the abomination that causes desolation. We did that last week. Tribulation, and then next week we'll talk about Jesus sending out his angels to gather the elect. But this morning we're talking about tribulation. Mark chapter 13, verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now. And never will. And then down in verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that in the heavens will be shaken. So tribulation is a major subject that Jesus talks about in discussing this time period between his departure and his return, and what will happen both as he departs and when he returns, and of course throughout the time in between, right? And which is where we're at. So my, my intent this morning is to first of all talk about that word because in truth, we really don't, I think, use or understand the word tribulation 
the way it should be understood. We'll talk about that. And then we'll talk about it in kind of a spectrum of Old Testament and New. How, did, how was it used throughout Scripture? And then look a little more carefully at this passage so that we can finally ask, how does it speak to us? So that's, that's the plan this morning. So first, let's, let's define the word. What does the word mean? And I don't know about, about anybody else, but my mindset on tribulation, until I looked at it more carefully, was always like, okay, fine, tribulation, that's like the book of Revelation, or what Thessalonians talks about, all that destruction at the end, and I'll deal with it when I get there. Right? I'm not going to worry about it now. Well, the word is so so much bigger than that. The word that is used uh, here in Mark and throughout Scripture, um, you know, some words sound like what they are. Right? There's even a technical name for words like that. Like the word ogre. I say ogre. You get an immediate visual. It sounds like what it is. This word isn't that way. The word for tribulation is flipsis. That's a very pleasant sounding word. You're like, you know, come on over this weekend. We're going to throw some, you know, burgers on the grill and have a big flipsis. And like, no thank you. I don't want it. It's bad. It's not good. It doesn't sound like that. Um, it, it occurs a lot. It occurs like 170 times in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which, if you're not familiar with that, that was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done in the centuries before Christ because the vast majority of Jews didn't speak Hebrew then. Uh, other than those living right around Jerusalem, most Jews didn't speak or certainly couldn't read Hebrew, so they gave them an Old Testament that they could read, which happened to be in Greek because that was the common language, which is why the New Testament is written in Greek. And it's important for a couple different reasons. One is when we're translating the New Testament, it provides us like a really good you know, dictionary. But in this case, it's important because it helps us see the mindset of those who were listening to Jesus. These were the words they were thinking. These were the ideas they were thinking. So whether slipsis, which is the noun, it means you know, tribulation, or affliction, or severe, any kind of a severe hardship, or tlivo, which is like the verb to cause tribulation or to experience tribulation. Really common uh, in the Old Testament. Again, it meant distress, trouble, oppression. Um, it, it's literally a feeling of being compacted or squeezed. And it's by no means strictly a religious word. Um, Herodotus, the military historian, he used it a lot to describe the squeezing in that occur, can occur during a, a battle or the pressure that we're under. And so in terms of you know, the human experience, it, it can be of a spiritual nature. Uh, it can be of an environmental nature, like an earthquake would definitely qualify as, as leapsies. Uh, it can be of an economic nature, really serious economic time, hard times. Um, it can be physical, an illness. Illness can certainly bring tribulation on. Relationships, all, anything that will bring that um, you know the expression, you know, immovable object, irresistible force, and you're in the middle. Right? That's the, that gets the visual on Thlipsis. You're just you're being crushed, you're being squeezed, and, and you don't know what to do about it. Uh, it's distress, uh, circumstances that press in and crush us. Dr. Renee Shippers, who's a Dutch theologian, wrote this about the way the word was used in that Septuagint document that the Jews all read for the Old Testament. He says this. Flipsis uh, is the oppression, and this, this is an incredible, incredible statement. Flipsis is the oppression which belongs of necessity to the history of Israel and which was regarded by the faithful as part of salvation history. I'm going to read that again because it's kind of a complicated definition. It belongs to the necessity of the history of Israel and was regarded by the faithful 
as part of salvation history. In other words, it was part and parcel of being the people of God. You are the people of God. Tribulation's part of it. Distress is part of it. Affliction's part of it. It comes with the turf. Um, my understanding of the Old Testament is, 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 as many of you know, very strongly influenced by the Fiddler on the Roof. I love that movie. It's so good. I think you should get like graduate credit for just watching it. It's so good. And one of the scenes in it that I absolutely adore is, it, well, adore is the wrong word, but it's really meaningful, is when the pogroms have started and, and, the, and the, you know, the ruffians are coming and they totally destroy Tevyev's daughter's wedding and they beat people up and they destroy people and they go off in the village and they start destroying. It's a horrific scene. And, and after it passes, poor Tevyev is just kind of wandering through the night and he, he lifts his eyes up to heaven and he says, Lord, I know we are your chosen people, but sometimes can you choose somebody else? That's a really good expression of it. It was just part and parcel of being the people of God. Um, we get to the New Testament. Again, it's a really common word. The interesting thing, both Old Testament and New, it's almost never spoken of the unbeliever. It's rarely, if ever, used of the person outside the household of faith. And even when it is used of somebody outside the household of faith, it's relative to somebody inside the household of faith. Like a really good example, um, talking about... Uh, uh, in, in, in one of the Psalms, it says, what, is it not right for me to afflict those who have afflicted you? So when it does talk about afflicting, God afflicting the ungodly, it's only because they afflicted the godly people, right? Um, it's just not spoken of, of the unbeliever. Um, when Scripture speaks of pressure or difficulty or trials, it usually is not speaking about how hard it is to be an unbeliever. It's speaking about how hard it can be for a believer. And that's not what we hear too often. That's not what typically influences our faith, but maybe it should. It is difficult at times to be a believer. Again, in the Old Testament, more than 100 references to difficulties, trials, tribulation. Um, just three verses, I think, in the book of Psalms. Interestingly, the most common place to find this word in the Septuagint in the Old Testament is not in the prophets declaring, you know, where all this is coming, but it's in the Psalms, where the psalmist is crying out of the, of the anguish of their heart or celebrating, but they're responding to God because of the experience, the trials and tribulations. But there's three Psalms that I think just kind of in, wrap it up really well in terms of human experience of trials, difficulties, tribulation in our relationship with God. Psalm 4, verse 1, uh, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you have relieved me in my distress. That's a yeah verse. I was in distress. I was in tribulation. And you showed up and just whoosh, took care of the problem. Yeah, I like that. That's nice. Psalm 9, verse 9. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. That's kind of in the middle, right? He hasn't shown up yet, but I'm really confident he will. When we're in times of distress, we can know, not sure when, but he will be a stronghold. He's going to show up for us, right? Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand far off, O Lord? 
Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Great. That's when God cannot be found. That's when the distress is present, and, I, and I'm feeling crushed, I'm feeling squeezed. There's no obvious way out, and I cry out to God, and he is nowhere to be found. The amazing thing is, all three of those verses came from the same guy, David. David knew all of them. David knew the full spectrum of what it was, as a, as a man of God, to feel affliction. And sometimes God shows up, boom, taken care of. Sometimes, well, he's not here yet, but I'm confident, I'm feeling good. And other times, I'm just lost. Because I have no idea where God is in this. Same guy. We go into the New Testament, and there are dozens of examples, just from the life of Paul, of the, the full range of the experience of a believer when, when things are going badly. Just uh, Romans 5, 3, we exult in our tribulation. Paul didn't say they went away. He said, but I found victory in them. Romans 8, 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation and the rest of the list. So it doesn't separate him, doesn't go away, but it doesn't separate him from God. Psalm 12, 2, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. For Paul, it was just part of the list. The daily experiences. Second Corinthians is, is marvelous. 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Never says in any of that that affliction will go away, but God will comfort us in our affliction in order that we might comfort others. Verse 8, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us even in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. This is Paul talking. So it's not a measure of do you have enough faith. It's not a measure of are you, are you spiritually discerning enough. Is your walk with God, you know, so properly squared away that it won't know? This is Paul. At a point that I despaired even of my own life. 2 Corinthians 2.4, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. He's simply crying, not because of his own affliction, but because of the ungodliness of the Corinthian church, and he sees where it's going. His heart was, was afflicted by that. He was in tribulation. And then, of course, 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul simply says, as bad as, as affliction may be, and it, man lost his life preaching the gospel, when you compare it to glory, whoop, it just goes up. Saw it in perspective. And if you want to go beyond Paul, there's always the Apostle John, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker of the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Part and parcel of being in the service of Christ. He was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God. So, so tribulation or anguish or difficulty, however, whatever other word you want to use, and lots of different words are used, to express that feeling of being pressed, it's really a matter of, I think probably the, the hardest form of tribulation to deal with Whatever else is going on is when you have that sense of, I know the God I serve, I know what the Word of God says about the God I serve, and my experience just isn't lining up. That's that third category, when God seems so far off. 
But that seemed to be standard issue in the early church. I always smile when I hear somebody say, I really wish we could get back to the early church. Fine. you mind if I back up a little bit? Because it's going to get rough right there. It was standard issue in the early church. You got saved, and you embraced the offer of eternal life through the shed blood of Christ. He said, I'll take that offer. I'll find freedom from my sins. I'll find, I'll find fellowship with the saints and fellowship with God. I'll, I'll take that offer. That offer is made to us too, through the blood of Christ. The free offer of salvation. Same for us as him. If you don't know it, talk to Pastor Joyce and I about it. We'll talk to you about it. But that was, they accepted that offer. I'll take that offer. And then they got baptized. And then they got tribulation. It's like a three-part deal. You know, three for the price of one. It was the norm. It was standard. Right? Part of being a believer. There were trials from persecution, trials from physical ailments, trials from all the difficulties of life, the trials of our own sinfulness. Paul talks about that. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. That's that same issue. Being pressed in by, by the call of the Word of God to live a godly life in my own carnality, and I'm getting squished, and it's not real comfortable. Looking back to Dr. Rene Shipper, the Dutch scholar, he states that tribulation serves three purposes. Good stuff. First of all, tribulation demonstrated that the church was and is in an eschatological age. And that's just a theological word that means we're headed for the exit. That's literally what it means. We're headed for the exit, right? The fact that we suffer tribulation is proof that we are in the eschatological age. This cosmic order is winding down. It is wearing out. It will fail. I made reference last week to, to 2 Peter chapter 3. I'd like to read it this week. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? Twice he says that in that passage, and there's not the slightest hint that he's speaking figuratively. If we can see it, taste it, touch it, hear it in any way, apprehend it through our five senses, it will be destroyed and gone. So how should we be living, Paul says, Peter says. The fact that we experience tribulation is evidence. Any form of tribulation, it's evidence that this, this whole cosmic system is winding down. The second thing it does, first one was give us evidence we're in an eschatological age. The second thing, and this is, is a challenge, it's a challenge. It provides us with identification with Christ. Paul writes in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now there's nothing insufficient in the work of Christ. When he hung upon the cross, he said, It is finished, it is done, his work was complete. We have complete salvation in him. But in the cross, or if you prefer another visual, in the table that is his affliction, 
there's room for us. Jesus pulls back the chair and says, have a seat at the table where I tasted affliction. Now, he doesn't explain why it has to be. He doesn't explain what happens when we do that. But he does invite us to the table. And so when we are experiencing affliction, rather than immediately saying, what's wrong? We should have the comfort of simply knowing that we're sharing something with him. Paul shared it. He invites us to share it as well. There's room left at that table. And then finally, as Dr. Shipper explains, tribulation is an essential element to eternal life. Again, not really explain why, but clearly stated, stated that it's truth. Acts 14, 21, 22. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There is something about the process of experiencing tribulation that prepares us to enter his kingdom. Text doesn't say what it is, but it states it plainly enough. It has to happen. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, I absolutely love this passage, is Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he wept over the sins of his people. He, he, he saw destruction was coming. Jeremiah speaks at length about the sins of the people, and he knew that destruction was coming. And he even saw it. He saw Jerusalem destroyed. He saw the people care, and he wept over it. But there's a marvelous passage of Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, this giant of a man, this giant of the faith. He said, Lord, I know that you are righteous whenever I bring a case before you. But I would have a word with you about your justice. That's a literal translation. Now, when Jeremiah said to God, I have, you're not going to have a word here, God. You know what's coming, right? He says, why is it that the ungodly prosper so? And Jeremiah goes on to talk about how well things go for the ungodly who are responsible for all the destruction that's coming and how difficult it is for those of us who are godly. And then God responds. Now, I'm going to let you read that response for yourself. Jeremiah chapter 12, good reading. But here this man of God knew what it was to be left in that sense of why is this happening? And yet, of course, he, as so many others, remained faithful. So tribulation, this state or condition of being pressed in, whether by circumstances of spiritual, circumstances environmental, financial, physical, whatever the circumstances are, this condition of being pressed in, feeding those who are about to be crushed, it is both inevitable and it is necessary. That's not easy. But now let's talk about how Jesus speaks about it here in Mark 13. He speaks about it as something that is universal. Verses 7 and 8, he spoke of wars and rumors of war, nation against nation, brother against brother, children against parents. No place on earth. This is, this is a tribulation that is expansive. Gulfs the entire globe. Some will experience more in many ways different, but it's an experience that will be universal. 
It's a tribulation that will be born for the people of God out of persecution. Verse 9, be on your guard. They will deliver you to the courts. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. It's a tribulation that will result in testimony. Verse 9, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. It's a persecution that will pursue God's people. Verse 14, let those who are in Judea flee. You're not going to have to look for it. We're not going to have to look for it. It's going to find us. Fact of life. But it all points to his return. That's, that's the good news. It all points to his return. Jesus said this, the end of chapter 13, Now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves. You know the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. It's a constant reminder. We're in the eschatological age. We're nearing the end, and what we're going through is necessary to prepare us for it. It's all for us. Now, obviously, each person experiences it differently. Different settings, different cultures. Tribulation is different. But ultimately, ultimately, it is a reminder this is not our home. When you strip away all the details, everything else that's been said, tribulation simply reminds us this is not our home. Paul says this in 2 Timothy, and I'll, I'll close with this. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For these, for this reason, I also suffer all things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him against that day. Paul understood the stakes. He understood the equation. He'd done the math. Everything here will go away. Only those things which we do in him remain. Father, I thank you, Lord, for what is not necessarily a pleasant truth. The idea that we can count on difficulties, trials, persecutions, sufferings, wherever on that scale it may find us, Father. The, the fact that we can count on that, Lord, does not bring a smile to our face. Except that it does remind us that this is not the place we were made for. This is not ultimately home. Ultimately, our home is in eternity, in you, in your presence, in a whole new, you know, cosmic order where all things will be different, Lord. We will lay aside the weakness, the frailty of this mortal flesh, Father, the failings, Father, of, of, of the nature that we struggle with, Father, and we will walk with you in a harmony, Father, that we can only now 
imagine. We can only now hope for, Father, but we have the assurance because we know the one in whom we have believed. And we are confident that you are capable. You are active in guarding that which we have entrusted to you against that day. Help us to go through this week with that confidence characterizing our thoughts and our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.